This podcast transmission contains childish language, adult content, psychological nudity, listener discretion is advised. And now for Australia's most exciting podcast, Life Down Under. Please welcome soon to be National Hall of Fame inductee and this evening's podcast host, Gray Stanton. Who was Martin Bright, please? A little bit of an enigma. Um, much of what you read is inaccurate, distorted. Um, a book that I would refer you to to get a better idea of who Martin is is a book by his mother, Carlene Bryant, called My Story. It's a very simple, honest, candid story about her son. She holds back nothing. Um, she expresses the grief, the whole process, but she, like everyone else, cannot comprehend what has happened and how things have never been properly investigated. There was no trial in the Port Arthur case. There was no coronial inquest. There was no public inquiry and no royal commission. Can you imagine that? 35 people murdered, 23 wounded, and the government did everything conceivable to stop the public learning the truth. And that is the way it is today. They will stop everything. They do not want people to know. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's podcast, our final episode for season one in 2021. For those of you that are new listeners, you can go to our website, lifedownunder.exposed. Before we move on, that last soundbite was an earlier interview conducted by an old and dear friend, Richie Allen, of Keith Allen Noble, dated 4th of March, 2017. And we'll leave the link to this in our description box podcast toolbar, a must-listen interview, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I would have it as a guess you have all heard about the crazy woman viral video. Well, a woman who was recorded in a video punching and spitting an unmasked male passenger on a Delta Airlines flight was charged in Georgia just a few days ago. The woman who was identified as Patricia Yannett Cornwall, aka Karen, was charged with assaulting by striking, beating or wounding, a crime which is punishable by a fine and or up to one year in jail if found guilty. And would you believe that this incident started over a beverage cart blocking the aisle? Maybe she's friends with Hunter Biden, uh, got high and he was banging her like a storm door in a hurricane. Good grief. Sorry ladies and gentlemen, but I've got to take a slash outside off stump, so we'll see you on the other side of this break. Here's the elephant in the room. Um, I don't think we can really do an episode about guns without talking about these tragic mass shootings that have been happening far too many times, uh, especially in the United States where I live. Um, but it doesn't only happen in the US. Captain Claire, who's from Australia, recorded herself telling a story about a, uh, a massacre in her home country and how her family reacted to it and we turn it into this short film. In 1996, I was about 14 years old and living on a small farm just outside of the nation's capital in Australia when the news broke through of a mass shooting. Police have just confirmed shots have been fired. 
The gunman pulled out a semi-automatic rifle and shot dead several people instantly. 32 people lie dead in the historic tourist reserve in Tasmania this morning, victims of the worst act by a lone gunman anywhere for a decade. All programming was interrupted across news, television, radio, in the papers for days, weeks, detailing every movement, motive and minute of what was now being referred to as the Port Arthur Massacre. The Port Arthur Massacre is Australia's worst multiple shooting incident. Police have confirmed that SWAT groups... The national and state government at the time put forward motions to reform gun laws and proposed bans on semi-automatic weapons as well as shotguns, as well as developing highly restrictive licensing and and ownership controls. As part of these reforms, a gun amnesty was established. A gun amnesty means that you could have taken your weapons, your guns, to any police station and turned them in. No questions asked, just get rid of them. We owned two rifles. Uh, one was my father's, because we lived on a farm, so, you know, occasionally we'd have to take care of a crazy chicken or scare away foxes from livestock and things like that. And the other one was passed down in my family from my great-grandfather to my grandfather and then to my dad. Dad would, um, when we were little, set up tin cans along the fence and um, we'd take pot shots with grandfather's rifle you know send the cans flying and all the dust would billow out from behind the cans and it was a lot of fun and I really liked really liked shooting the rifle you know but in April in 1996 my interest in guns changed completely as did a great many of Australians. I remember when it happened, dad called us into the living room and he laid the two rifles out on the dining room table. You know, we had a talk about what had happened and what we as a family were going to do about it. And he explained the amnesty and explained the laws as best he could to three kids. And he pulled the rifles apart and wrapped the pieces up individually. We all got into the car and went down to the local police station and handed them in as part of the gun amnesty. It was so important. It was really important for us to do that because it's a vow for not only to those in Port Arthur, but to those living in this country from then on and to my community and to my family that it was never, ever going to happen again. I think in general, across Australia, everyone was just horrified. I wasn't even there. <laughs> Oh, for fuck's sake. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, seriously, if you bought anything that was in that ad break, then you need to go and have your brain checked. I mean, this is the crap that we're dealing with. I think they refer to these losers as woke. You can't make it up, ladies and gentlemen. So let's get down to business. Australians reacted with horror and outrage when on the evening of Sunday, 28 April 1996, they learned that 35 people had been murdered and 22 injured in an orgy of violence at the Port Arthur Historic Site, also known as PAHS in Tasmania, one of the nation's most venerable historic sites and at adjacent locations. The alleged perpetrator, a young Caucasian male with long blonde hair named Martin Bryant, was apprehended by police the following morning after he emerged from a burning tourist guesthouse, Seascape Cottage, which was located a short distance from Port Arthur. At 13.30 hours on Sunday 28 April 1996, an unknown professional combat shooter opened fire in the Broad Arrow Cafe at Port Arthur. In less than a minute, 20 people lay dead, 19 of them killed with single shots to the head fired from the right hip of the fast-moving shooter. In less than 30 minutes, at six crime scenes, 35 people were shot dead, 
another 22 wounded and two cars stopped with a total of only 64 rounds. A fast-moving Daihatsu Feroza four-wheel drive driven by Linda White was crippled by what is known as a Beirut triple, normally reserved for dead-blocking Islamic terrorists driving primed car bombs around Lebanon. One sighting shot, a second to disable the driver, and a third to stop the engine before the primed car bomb can hit its target and explode. Very few know of this obscure technique, and even fewer can master it with only three rounds. This awesome display of combat marksmanship was blamed on an intellectually impaired young man called Martin Bryant, who had no shooting or military experience at all. It has since come to light the shooter was from an elite element from within Israel's Mr. Avim. That is, the actual suspected killer was an operative within Unit 33. Mr. Avim is the name given to counter-terrorism units of the Israel Defense Forces, Israel Border Police and Israel Police who operate undercover. Such units are specifically trained to assimilate among the local civilian population. They are commonly tasked with performing intelligence gathering, law enforcement, hostage rescue and counter-terrorism and to use disguise and surprise as their main weapons. The name is derived from the Arabic Master Arabi meaning those who live among the Arabs, which refers to the Musta'arabi Jews, Arabic-speaking Jews who lived in the Middle East since the beginning of the Arab rule in the 7th century, prior to the arrival of Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews following their expulsion from Spain in 1492. A consultant on the Middle East, Gary Spedding, said that the activity of Musta'arabin allows the Israeli military and border police to identify protesters they wish to arrest and detain. Israeli affairs expert Antoine Shalat claimed that the main missions of the Musta Rabin include gathering intelligence and counter-terrorist operations. The training for these units consists of about 15 months. Four months of basic infantry training at the Mitkan Adam Army Base, the Israeli Defense Force Special Training Center, two and a half months of advanced infantry training in the same base, two months of the unit's basic training which focuses on advanced urban navigation and the beginning of counter-terrorism training, then there is four months of the Mr. Avim course which covers everything from learning Arab traditions, language and way of thought to civilian camouflage such as hair dyeing, contact lenses and clothing. And then last but not least they have a one-month course which is sniper, driving and different instructor courses. One of our operatives has since confirmed that the Port Arthur shooter was a trained member within the Israeli police, the Gideonim, or as we've mentioned earlier, Unit 33. The Port Arthur massacre was carried out, as we've stated before, a Khazarian operation. And how do we know this, you ask? Keep listening, ladies and gentlemen. Keep listening. Bryant instantly became the most vilified individual in Australian history and was rapidly enlisted in the serial killer's hall of infamy as the world's second most lethal gunman. However, the case, which never went to trial, is full of clues, direct and indirect, to suggest that Martin Bryant, a 29-year-old man with an IQ of only 66, was framed. However, even today, the case is regarded by most people as so delicate that it is considered insensitive to discuss it at all, a perfect means of perpetuating a cover-up if ever there was one. And so, ladies and gentlemen, Martin Bryant's guilt. There is a problem due to a significant lack of evidence. 
Strikingly absent from the recent media coverage this year in 2021, the 25th anniversary of the most traumatic event in modern Australian history, was evidence to support the official claim that Martin Bryant had been responsible for the massacre. The matter of whether Bryant had really been the perpetrator was only touched upon in an interview with Bryant's mother, Carlene Bryant, that was aired by 60 Minutes, dated 22nd of September 2018. The matter of whether Bryant had really been the perpetrator was only touched upon in an earlier interview with Bryant's mother, Carlene Bryant, that was aired by 60 Minutes, dated 22nd of September 2018. Julianne Davies' earlier interview of Carlene Bryant, dated 4th of April 2006, does not raise the subject of whether Carlene has any evidence to support her claims, simply observing patronisingly that Mrs. Bryant, quote, lives in a state of denial, close quote. As we will show in this episode, even with 60 Minutes investigative journalist Charles Woolley, whom dismissed Carlene's book about the Port Arthur massacre, it is both Charles Woolley and Julianne Davies whom are living in a state of denial, as are all Australians who think that Martin Bryant was responsible for the tragedy of Port Arthur. There is simply no hard evidence to support this belief. None. Most Australians, when confronted by the heretical idea that Bryant might not have been the gunman, respond in knee-jerk fashion. Of course he was, they say. People saw him do it. In fact, it has never been proven that Bryant was the man people saw do it. It was the police and the media, not the eyewitnesses, who identified Bryant as the gunman. As we shall see, only two eyewitnesses have ever specifically identified Bryant as the perpetrator, and both of them gave their statements a month later after they had been influenced by the publicity given to Bryant in the media. After Martin Bryant's conviction based on coerced and fatally flawed guilty pleas, the media continued a low-level campaign of continual reinforcement designed to repeatedly convince the public that Bryant was guilty as charged, despite the complete absence of any evidence. By late 2000, newspapers started printing stories with photos of Bryant's mother Carlene and his sister Lindy. The stories were deliberately hurtful to both sides and the photos made them nervous as they were intended to. Being identifiable, relatives of the hated Martin Bryant could easily place Carlene and Lindy Bryant at extreme risk and possibly lead directly to revenge attacks by fanatical followers of the Bryant Did It official media story. Most hurtful was the complete lie in December of 1998 that Martin had not received a personal visit in more than two years Though it is true Carlene was deliberately tricked into not visiting her son for an extended period, she decided to take on the prison authorities late in 1999, winning the first contact visit with her son since his arrest in April 1996. Carlene has visited her son several times since, but all subsequent visits were of the non-contact variety, with authorities deliberately placing a pane of bulletproof glass between mother and son. As this analysis proves scientifically, Martin Bryant killed no one at Port Arthur that day. It is now up to the Australian Federal Government and people to track down those responsible for ordering and funding this loathsome terrorist attack against Australians on Commonwealth territory. Those still in doubt are invited to look at the new startling photographic evidence that we will produce within the description box links of this podcast. If you ignore the media propaganda, ladies and gentlemen, and study the details of this actual case properly, what becomes readily apparent is that there is no evidence that Martin Bryant, alone and to the exclusion of all other young men with long blonde hair, 
executed this massacre. What's more, there are compelling reasons to believe that Martin Bryant could not have done it. As Carlene Bryant told the Bulletin, quote, He didn't have the brains, close quote. Above all, ladies and gentlemen, Martin didn't possess the shooting ability. Well, he, he received in the fall of 2019, he received a very, very clear statement drafted by yours truly that actually said, if you want to have a chance at winning the election, you have to stop supporting the coup attempt. I mean, that letter is a letter that I wrote, and I know that it was requested by a member of his family, delivered to him. I know he knew it. And my point was, if you want to win the election, what you need to do is actually point to the short guy that's in front of you in this podium and go, by the way, this domestic terrorist is the reason why we almost lost our country and I'm holding this domestic terrorist accountable. Now, convenient thing is it would have been very easy to have Secret Service or the FBI there and arrest him and cuff him and we would have been out of this nonsense a long time ago. But for reasons that can only be described as patronage, because it turns out that it is bad, bad, bad for business. If you're going into an elected position, it's bad for business to be on the wrong side of the drug dealers. Because let's face it, drug dealers are the largest endorser of pol political campaigns yeah, in America. The biggest lobbyers by almost double, but twice by, the oil and by gas. By close industry. to triple, by close to triple now. So, so the fact of the matter is, if you hold the drug dealers accountable, they hold you accountable and you don't get elected. And that has got to stop because Trump's morality was for sale for 30 pieces of silver. And he has sold American lives to the drug dealers. Yeah, that's a heavy, it's a heavy thing to, to even explore. I mean, now, do you think that there could have been any kind of NDA or something that would have stopped him from speaking in a certain way about what's happening with these vaccines? You know, I try as best I can to stick with the evidence that I have in my possession. What I do know is that on the 19th of September, when he signed, uh, 2019, when he signed the executive order that included the mandate for vaccines that included um, a, you know, recombinant technology, re recombinant gene technology. In September of 2019, Seth, there was not a single reason for that to be an executive order. There's a lot of things wrong. Remember that during that period of time, we did have, an, have another emergency use authorization going on. And people forget this. We had another EUA and that EUA was on the opioid crisis. Now it turns out that the same people who were making billions of dollars getting people addicted and killed by opioids held the patents. Listen to what I'm saying. They held the patents on a non-addictive formula so that no one could make the non-addicted formula. Gosh. That's a live EUA that was live in September of 2019. If the president was caring about humanity, he could have made an emergency use authorization to force the production of non-addicting opioids because that information was known by the government. That information was known by the media and not a single person was taking action on that. But instead on September 19th, he signs an executive order that mandates a vaccine urgent platform. 
in September of 2019. There was nothing on the horizon in September of 2019. And the only reason that executive order was put on his desk is someone paid him to sign it. Gosh. So do you think, and, and this is an understanding where Trump was at with all this, and he, he talked a lot about the invisible enemy yeah. that he's up against. And do you think that there, there, he is in some ways trying to fight up against this cabal, this you know, the, the corporatocracy that's ruling the, the the world? Do you think that he's still trying within the limited means that he has within the bounds of this war to fight to save potentially a lot more deaths in the future? You know, um, I know that that was certainly uh, the position that I aspired to hold. And if that sounds like it's watered down, it is. I, I wanted this to be an answerable in maybe there's a multi-level chessboard and this is a move on one level to save a move on the other level. But here's the problem with that story. The problem with that story is what has happened to the military. You do not allow the Department of Defense to issue a self-inflicted harm order to the Department of Defense where you take military men and women, people who are trained, advanced fighting forces, Navy SEALs, special forces, you know, special air wings in the Air Force. You do not take our best defense and sideline them by forcing them to take a kill shot. You do not do that if you're playing for the same team. You would never do anything. And by the way, the, the current Secretary of Defense is a traitor. And we need to call it what it is. You do not weaken your own army so that a foreign party can take advantage of that weakness. We have fewer special forces. We have fewer Marines. We have fewer defensive postures than we had six months ago and eight months ago. And we did it for what? We did it because we were trying to force people to take a jab that would ultimately harm their, their fighting force readiness. I wrote a piece for the Department of Defense and it was circulated internally, which actually suggested that in addition to the vaccine injury question, which is actually a very significant problem, we were doing what was called battlefield softening. In other words, we were self-inflicting onto our defense forces, a means by which fewer of them could potentially rise to the defense of this country. And we did that intentionally. And no empire in human history has survived an internal military fighting force softening. And we did it to ourselves. So this is not something I can look at and just kind of innocently go, well, it's just an error in judgment and there's a chessboard play that there's, listen, this is corruption at its core. This is evil at its core. And we, the people, have to be able to actually call it what it is. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Unfortunately, the Port Arthur massacre was a planned event designed to disarm the Australian public. Many of you may not be aware of the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania, Australia, the result of which created significant gun control and many may not understand that what happened that Sunday, 28 April 1996, 
led to many questions being asked which remain unanswered to this day. Questions that we will discuss in this podcast. One could certainly draw comparisons between the false flag of the Port Arthur massacre and the false flag of Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting dated 14 December 2012 at Newtown, Connecticut, United States, in that the outcome could be the same if the President and the US government have their way there also. We will now discuss some of the findings by other authors and experts, including the police themselves, which upon reading may cause you some concern. Firstly, some questions that have already been asked, but remain unanswered. 1. On the Sunday morning, two hours before the murders, 10 of the senior managers of Port Arthur were taken to safety many miles away up the East Coast for a two-day seminar with a vague agenda and no visiting speakers. Why? Was the timing of this trip a mere coincidence? 2. Also, just before the shootings, the only two policemen in the region were called away on a wild goose chase. They were sent to the coal mine at Saltwater River to investigate a heroin drug stash which turned out to be soap water. This was too far for them to get to the Broad Arrow Cafe in Port Arthur in time to be of any use. Had the policeman remained at Denali, he would have closed the swing bridge to prevent the killer or killers from escaping from the peninsula. Unless, of course, that US submarine was involved. After all, that has never been followed up on. Or was it an Israeli submarine masquerading with US markings? Furthermore, did Martin Bryant, the suspected shooter with an IQ of 66, organize this decoy? 3. Big Mortuary Truck Before the massacre, a specially built 22-person capacity mortuary vehicle was built in the United States. It attracted some derision at the time, but its effective use at Port Arthur was unquestioned. Why? After the massacre, it was advertised unsuccessfully for sale via the internet, then converted for another purpose. Without the foresight of Port Arthur, why build it? When it had proven its worth, why get rid of it? Another coincidence? I think not. 4. Martin Bryant has never been properly identified as the gunman. Never. A young woman who ate her lunch near the gunman just before 13.30 hours that Sunday, 28 April 1996, said he had a freckled face. Graham Collier, the wounded ex-soldier, who had the best opportunity to observe the killer, said he had a pock-marked or acneed face. Neither description fits Bryant, who has a beautifully smooth complexion. Graham Collier says that it was not Bryant who shot him in the neck. 5. Illegal photograph. On 30th of April 1996, the Hobart Mercury printed an old photo of Martin Bryant on the front page. This was illegal because at that stage, some of the witnesses had not yet been asked to identify the killer and the photograph would have become fixed in the minds of the witnesses. When one witness was asked to describe the clothing worn by the gunman, she described the clothing on the old photograph instead of what the gunman had worn. The Mercury newspaper was not prosecuted for breaking the law. 6. Mrs. Wendy Skur, who was a registered nurse, tour guide and ambulance officer, rang the police at 13.32 hours to report the shooting. She and other medics then cared for the injured and the dead without any police protection for six and a half hours. Who ordered the armed police to stop at Tirana when they had a barbecue? Even the police who arrived by boats and were a stone's throw away from the main crime scene in the cafe 
also failed to come in to see what was going on. Was this lack of protection meant to increase the trauma of the survivors? 7. Three more shots were fired at Port Arthur at 18.30 hours while Bryant was at Seascape. Who fired those shots? Remembering, ladies and gentlemen, that Seascape was the cottage. 8. Same question, different answer. At a recent forensic seminar in Queensland where Tasmanian police forensic gun inspector Gerard Dutton gave a lecture, the first question came from Mr Ian McNiven. He asked if there was any empirical evidence to link Martin Bryant to the Broad Arrow Cafe. Sergeant Dutton immediately closed the 15-minute question time and would not reply. When Mr McNiven managed to say, quote, I have here Graham Collier's police statement, close quote. Sergeant Dutton threatened him with arrest and called for security agents to escort Mr McNiven out of the building. When Sergeant Dutton was asked the same question in America by a doctor at a seminar, he replied truthfully, quote, there is no empirical evidence to link Bryant to the cafe, close quote. In that a teller, ladies and gentlemen. Keith, qui bono, who benefits? With cases like 9-11, Sandy Hook and others, we can identify or at least speculate as to who benefited. But what about poor Darzer? Who benefited, Keith? Yes, um, leading up to this, was the Australian government was committed, is committed to uh, de-arming the population. They tried and tried to get firearm legislation through Australia-wide. Um, they've never had any success. And it was stated years before that unless there was a massacre of some sort, some size, they would never get legislation through. And because not all the states would agree on it and there was always resistance, they needed this. And of course, when this happened, they had ready to go legislation. It was very quickly passed and the public was convinced that this was the thing to do. They wanted to get rid of the guns. It's the guns that are the problem. And they set this up. Martin is the patsy. They got their legislation and now they've forgotten about it, except Martin is still there. The belief is that Martin was, like in a number of these cases, supposed to die in this incident. And if you can recall, Richie, when he came out of the seascape cottage, he was babbling strange things, but most significantly, he had third degree burns on his back and buttocks. He was lying probably unconscious or drugged, burnt to such a degree that his body snapped out of it and he got himself out of the cottage. But he was most probably not supposed to survive. Nine, yet a police videotape exists which proves that the police had an excellent opportunity to get DNA samples and fingerprints of the gunman. The video briefly shows the blue sports bag on a cafe table. The gunman had carried his three rifles in this bag and left it right next to his drinking glass, his solo soft drink can, knife, fork, plate, etc. Why did the police fail to take DNA samples and fingerprints? Ten. According to the official story, Bryant first killed David and Sally Martin at Seascape Cottage in the morning, then went on to Port Arthur. Yet two policemen have reported seeing a naked woman with black hair screaming and running from one building to another at Seascape well into the afternoon. If Sally Martin was dead, who was this woman? 11. Proof of other gunmen at the Seascape Cottage. 
While Bryant was calmly talking to police by telephone in the cottage during the siege and the conversation was recorded, someone else fired an SKK rifle 20 times. In the transcript, the gunfire is recorded as coughs, but an electronic analysis of one of the coughs shows that it was in fact an SKK rifle shot. 12. Two more very handy seminars. On the Sunday morning, some 25 specialist doctors, Royal Australian College of Surgeons, from all over Australia had attended a training course in Hobart, and their last lecture was on terrorist attack and gunshot wounds. They stayed on to take care of the wounded victims. How bloody convenient. 13. Also, more than 700 reporters from 17 nations came to a seminar in Hobart. They were asked to arrive during the weekend as the seminar was due to begin early on Monday morning. How handy to have 700 scribblers on the spot, churning out their anti-gun and disarmament propaganda to the world. 14. Quote, There will never be uniform gun laws in Australia until we see a massacre somewhere in Tasmania. Close quote. This was said by Barry Unsworth, New South Wales Premier, December 1987 at a conference in Hobart. Prophecy or planning? 15. Quote, if we don't get it right this time, i.e. the gun laws, next time there is a massacre, and there will be, then they'll take all our guns off us. Close quote. And this was stated by the Deputy Prime Minister Tim Fisher in May of 1996, just a month after the Port Arthur massacre. Who is they? Who would order the removal of our guns? Did Tim Fisher let slip that gun confiscation has been ordered by someone other than our own leaders? 16. No respect for the law. Our law demands that a coronial inquiry must take place, A, when foreign nationals are killed, and B, when anyone dies in a fire. At Port Arthur, several foreigners were killed and three people died in the fire at Seascape. 17. It is evident that the massacre was planned to happen on the ferry, which sailed to the Isle of the Dead every day. The victims were to be 80 elderly American tourists who had come in two coaches. But the plan went awry because the sailing time of the ferry had changed from 1330 hours to 1400 hours. So, ladies and gentlemen, Port Arthur Massacre was a setup. It was a false flag to ban guns in Australia. Here is some information regarding the Port Arthur Massacre in Australia and how the gunman was set up. As a result of this, the government banned guns in Australia. The Port Arthur Massacre of 28 April 1996 was a killing spree which claimed the lives of 35 people and wounded 22 others, mainly at the historic Port Arthur Prison Colony, a popular tourist site in southeastern Tasmania, Australia. Martin Bryant, a 28-year-old from Newtown, eventually pleaded guilty to the crimes and was given 35 life sentences without possibility of parole. He is now interned in the Wilfred Lope Centre near Risdon Prison. The Port Arthur Massacre remains Australia's deadliest killing spree and one of the deadliest such incidents worldwide in recent times. Wendy Skur was the first person into the Broad Arrow Cafe after the Port Arthur Massacre and she has a completely different story to tell from the mainstream media, the police and the federal and state governments. Find out just how much disinformation and myths have been created around the pre-planned Port Arthur Massacre. Not to leave DNA evidence or fingerprints. It's just impossible. 
that this that this man committed these crimes, these heinous crimes. Keith, I'm, I'm going to draw you right back to the very beginning. You said, um, I think you said something like, allegedly 35 victims. Now, I should have picked you up on that, but I didn't want to be jumping on you straight away as we were just beginning to talk. Do you think that maybe 35 people didn't die? Do you think that the death toll is exaggerated in some way? The exact number of the deaths and wounded are not certain. Some say higher, some say lower. There are things you can read on the internet, but I've always stayed with those numbers because that's what I came across when I started working on this case. So the numbers are probably are reasonable, but it could be less, it could be more. And they needed a big splash, so they needed numbers like that. And just to go back to a point that you talk about with the shooting in the cafe, Martin shot in a left-handed manner and he showed the police how he shot, but the shooter in the cafe shot in a right-handed manner. Now you just don't, um, very few people are, are ambidextrous when it comes to shooting, especially with high accuracy. You might be highly accurate with one side, but on the other side, not so. But Martin was not a trained shooter. He, he had a little bit of shooting, so he said, and uh, his another point was his girl friend at the time he had a, a lady friend and his mother both said they never saw weapons in the house and yet the police claim he had a grand piano full of them i mean this is absolute nonsense now let's go to another aspect of this terrible event as told by another third party called joe viles or is his real name ari ben manash an israeli possibly belonging to Mossad. And here is what Joe Viles said, word for word. On 28 April 1996, at Port Arthur in Australia, only a handful of the best combat shooters in the world could have used a total of only 64 rounds to kill 35 people, wound 22 more, and cripple two vehicles. The first 19 victims in the Broad Arrow Cafe each died from a single 5.56mm NATO round to the head all fired in less than 20 seconds from the right hip of a fast-moving combat shooter. This awesome display of marksmanship was blamed on an intellectually impaired young man called Martin Bryant, who has no shooting or military experience whatsoever. In the months and years following Martin's arrest, much of the public and private strain fell on his widowed mother, Carleen. This is a very small part of Carleen Bryant's profoundly disturbing story. The third major investigation was into the Port Arthur Massacre in Tasmania, Australia. Joe Viles claims that an intellectually impaired man, Martin Bryant, was wrongly convicted for this crime and did not receive a fair trial. Joe Viles claimed that this case also was an Israeli operation carried out by Mr. Avim. Mr. Avim is the name given to those counter-terrorism units of the Israel Defense Forces in which soldiers are specifically trained to disguise themselves as Arabs amongst the civilian population. And even another version of events, when asked about the crime scene, an Australian SAS soldier commented, quote, only Jews kill like that, close quote. The gun was a rare Israeli commando model, a CAR-15. John Howard, is a liberal that panders to Australia's 140,000 Jews. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, that the ones are running this show, they're not actually Jewish. They're Kazarian, masquerading within the Jewish population, which we already covered, by the way, in our previous podcast. Rupert Murdoch, who controls the newspapers, put him in power. 
Jews have always wanted a gun ban here in Australia. John Howard rushed the most draconian one in history through Parliament in two weeks. The legislation banned 80% of all firearms, set up a national registration and confiscated present firearms. What really happened? Well, the Kazarians want a gun law passed so they can stage horrific massacre. Martin Bryant was befriended by two Mideast types in the month before. That day, they took two cars to Port Arthur. One drives Martin Bryant's Volvo to the cafe and slaughters the 35 moving his way back to the cottage. There they killed the elderly couple and give Bryant a drug mixture, psychotropic drug cocktails containing amphetamines and benzodiazepam used by Mossad on Arab suicide bombers. Bryant was told to stay and protect and they left. A pair was seen escaping over drawbridge. And we will also include, ladies and gentlemen, a photo used by the media to convince you of Martin Bryant's guilt. We have a photograph frame shot 14.45 hours, more than an hour after the mass murder was over. This damning photographic evidence by itself proves Martin Bryant was deliberately set up, wrongly accused and wrongly convicted. Remember, a camera cannot lie. So ladies and gentlemen, you might recall that we mentioned earlier on in this podcast this evening the awesome display of combat marksmanship being blamed on an intellectually impaired young man called Martin Bryant who had no shooting or military experience at all. Hence, we also mentioned the book Deadly Deception at Port Arthur which proves in absolute scientific terms that Martin Bryant killed no one at Port Arthur that day. It is now up to the Australian federal government and people to track down for those responsible for ordering and funding this loathsome terrorist attack against Australians on Commonwealth soil. No doubt you are all now totally confused, but one thing for sure is the fact that the accounts given above appear far too intelligent for an average person to write and thus may add some authenticity that the author was himself involved with Israeli intelligence, which the person below sums up very well. However, we will let you decide. McGregor pointed out that all these things have numbers. Martin was supposed to have handcuffs. Well, they have numbers and all these things can be traced, but somehow the handcuffs just disappeared um, and they're not on the evidence list. And these kind of things that are so significant that link everything together, they just get forgotten about. And people just lashing out and thinking, he did it, we saw him, end of story. We learned when he was um, found guilty because of this, you know, fake confession that he gave, we learned from some guy who allegedly assessed Martin to see could the disability pension, uh, sh should it continue, because he was given a disability pension when he left school, such was his low IQ. Yes. Um, we, so all of a sudden we get this note, this note comes out of nowhere that says, oh, um, when this woman died that, that Keith was, uh, sorry, that Martin was friends with, um, well, I assessed uh, Martin to uh, to see should he keep getting the disability thing, and in that he talked about killing people. I mean, it's just bullshit, isn't it, Keith? I mean, it's just bullshit. It's the sort of stuff that you'd expect children to do if they were trying to frame another child for stealing their lunch money or something. Just crap. You know, all of a sudden, out of the woodwork, oh, yeah, yeah, he mentioned sometime that he felt like killing people. Well, why didn't you do something about it then? Why didn't you tell somebody at the time? And outright lies. You're asking all these questions. And yet I doubt there are very many people in Tasmania, at least in politics or public life, who, who give a shite about him, who care 
tuppence for him, like. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's the books and the videos that people have made and the detail, it's just so much detail. But the system is totally corrupt. People have a very false uh, understanding of what Australia is like. It's a very romantic, from my experience, and I've lived in both places. I'm originally from Australia. People here in, in, in North America and also here in Europe, it's a romantic thing. And nobody wants to talk about this. And they think of the wild outback and all these things and the land down under and, and you know, they name some songs and didgeridoos and all this thing and it's it's completely false the, the system of justice it's not it's a legal system it's corrupt to the core Joe Viles, author of Deadly Deception at Port Arthur, which will be included in our description box, has always stated that the Port Arthur massacre was a Mossad operation. You see, Joe Viles was also at one stage known as Ari Ben Manash, and even wrote a book titled Prophets of War under that name. What this book was about was the supposed autobiography of the author Ari Ben Manash, or Joe Viles if you prefer, and his involvement in certain Mossad and other Israeli covert operations throughout the world. In other words, Ari Ben Manash boasted of his exploits as an Israeli intelligence agent prior to his settling in Australia as a last point of refuge. Ari Ben Manash then becomes Joe Viles, and whether or not the same Viles originated from birth or from some later stage in life, all Australians were introduced to Ari Ben Manash as Joe Viles. Joe Viles' understandings of the Port Arthur massacre were unique and comprehensive to the extreme. Joe Viles even had knowledge of the actual gunman that was denied to all other Australians. He demonstrated this knowledge when after reading Graham Collier's police statement and referring to the remarks made by Graham that the gunman had a pitted or acne-marked face, and Joe stated, quote, no, not acne, chickenpox, close quote. The question was always, how could Joe differentiate without knowledge of what Graham Collier actually saw and remarked about? But now Shooter's News have revealed just how Joe Viles, or Ari Ben Manash, actually had the information. Joe Viles was actually at the Port Arthur historic site at the time of the massacre and was involved with others known to be employed by the Australian government at that time. It should be mentioned that Ari Ben Manash served in the Israeli Defence Force in signal intelligence from 1974 to 1977 and then transferred across to Military Intelligence Directorate from 1977 to 1987. Furthermore, Ari Ben Manash had direct ties to specific members that died on the 12th of June 1996 in the Townsville Blackhawk crash that resulted in the deaths of some 18 SAS operatives. One of these members was Corporal Mirin Avedisian of 152 Signal Squadron. Now let us go back to Joe's statements that the Port Arthur massacre was a Mossad covert operation. How would Joe have known about this as most of the operatives involved in the massacre were Australians? The answer is simple. The Port Arthur massacre was run by a Mossad agent by the name of Ari Ben Manash, or for Australians, Joe Viles. That is why Joe would have been on the veranda of the Broad Arrow Cafe after the event, because things had gone so badly wrong and Australia had lost seven intelligence operatives. There was an emergency meeting of the top surviving operatives to discuss the problems and how they were to be overcome. That shooter's news has now named Hans Overbeek, Constable Justin Noble of the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence and Joe Viles as the persons holding that emergency meeting. If this is factual, then just what position did Joe Viles hold during the massacre? 
Please remember, ladies and gentlemen, that Joe Viles has always stated that the massacre was an Israeli intelligence operation. And since Joe was the only known Israeli intelligence member of these three men, then the only position Joe could have held was that he was in overall command at Port Arthur. And that explains rather simply just how Joe knew that the Port Arthur massacre was in fact an Israeli intelligence covert operation because he bloody well ran it. So interesting, don't you think? Maybe now we can start to see the connection between Port Arthur and Sandy Hook, which is also believed to be an Israeli New World Order false flag operation. Before closing this part of the Port Arthur massacre, I would also like to point out the following that was also published by another third party. What we have here, ladies and gentlemen, is a team already on site with a camera mounted on a tripod and pre-aimed at the cafe. Listen also to one of the comments, quote, that's a shotgun, close quote. Someone is shooting a gun here, ladies and gentlemen. They are not surprised, and why should they be? No doubt, they were actually waiting to capture the event. And seeing as they recorded the start, one must assume that they kept the camera rolling and got the entire thing. If so, it was never recorded as being available to the Director of Public Prosecutions in court who bemoaned the lack of actual footage. One can only draw the conclusion that this footage actually existing would be very hard to explain. Incidentally, the man running the cafe is not the gunman who was still inside shooting. James Belasco stated that the gunman, quote, walked out of there as casual as can be, close quote. However, instead of the assumed footage of the gunman leaving the cafe area, we actually have a staff member running blankets down to the survivors. Note the three men on the veranda who certainly are not in fear of their lives, almost as if they're observers. Port Arthur was plagued by media spin before Martin Bryant had even been charged, named as the guilty one on the Sunday, despite not being charged until the Monday. I am sure viewers who watched this footage on Current Affair accepted that this was footage of Martin Bryant helping to ensure public outrage against a man who was not arrested at the original crime scene, who never got a trial, never confessed as well he shouldn't, and further, there was no DNA of his found at the cafe other than in the Prince bag deliberately left in the cafe, and a second bag left the cafe along with a shotgun carried inside. The description of the footage as described is shown via the following link, and as you can clearly see, one person is running toward the bus and two persons are still on the balcony. How did the media manage to get both these two videos unless it has been pre-arranged? Again, ladies and gentlemen, it's up to the Australian people to decide, take responsibility and bring the perpetrators to justice. And I would also like to mention, ladies and gentlemen, a comment was left in one of the postings of the Port Arthur massacre, and it was posted three years ago. It states, quote unquote, those that served at the regiment know the truth. And the regiment, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is the Special Air Service Regiment, which is the SAS in Australia. Many still have to hide what they know and face the lies. The SAS was not involved, but they know the real truth. Try looking and checking US Naval submarine records. A United States submarine sailed out 45 minutes after the shooting. 
close quote. And that's right, ladies and gentlemen, because on the 12th of June, which was a Wednesday night at approximately 18.53 hours, two Black Hawks from 5th Aviation Regiment collided and crashed just outside Townsville. Twelve members on one helicopter were killed and six members of the SAS at the second helicopter died. A total of 18 Beret-qualified Special Air Service operatives dead. You think that that's not related to Port Arthur? The answer is it absolutely was. for the work that he's put in. I'd read the, a lot of the documents on many occasions and I just read over everything. But Andrew, being an ex-policeman, he had a more investigative mind than what I had. Port Arthur is a story of social, social engineering at its worst. This is the first time I have spoken in detail publicly of my experience at Port Arthur. I'm now convinced that our politicians Elected public servants and their offsiders in the bureaucracy have used this against me in their efforts to make sure that due legal process in relation to the Port Arthur massacre never happens. Comments such as, after nearly five years it should be forgotten, to me are an insult. You decide for yourself the possibility of me ever forgetting when I finish speaking tonight. I haven't anything to hide, I don't sleep well at night, but I hope after tonight there are a few more in the same position, and it's not you people. They know who they are. If the cap fits, wear it. There were many heroes at Port Arthur on the 28th of April 1996. I saw the fear, the terror, and against all odds, the staff and visitors who were there give so much of themselves, more than anyone should have to in peacetime in this country. In some cases, these people had found next of kin and partners deceased or injured but they had no choice but to keep working on. After all this effort, a lot of these people have been thrown on the scrap heap, especially the visitors. Many of them have told me that they have not heard from any Tasmanian government department or the Port Arthur Historic Site to ask how they are for the past three years or longer. Although I have only had regular contact with a few visitors, there is no doubt in my mind these people would be experiencing considerable difficulty. One of these victims lost her only child that day and has had no less than 30 operations in the last five years. She was also very severely injured. In fact, when I hear of their problems, I feel guilty that I'm a Tasmanian. If this is the way we treat our tourists, then I wonder why they visit us at all. And if you want to read a little on this particular lady's story, this is in this week's new idea. And her name is Caroline Lawton. To these people I say, the thinking Australians are not fooled. They simply don't know the half of it. John Howard said it would be too hurtful for the victims and their families to have a coronial inquiry, as did the Tasmanian Attorney General, Ray Groom. We're still waiting for that coronial inquiry. Without finality, how can we be expected to continue our lives? I recently remember the night I saw John Howard demanding the Australian victims in the bridge collapse at the Maccabee Games be properly compensated by the Israelis. Don't get me wrong, I'm not for one minute saying they shouldn't have received compensation. But the Port Arthur victims from all over Australia and overseas never received any more than criminal injuries compensation and I know many who haven't even got that. To my knowledge, no staff or otherwise have received uh, compensation for any damages. The donated, 
money from the Australian people was given and spent on transport burials as far as I know. I'm just going to give you a little history and just show you on the map exactly where Port Arthur is. Port Arthur was settled in 1830 and it closed in 1877. And it was at once Australia's largest industrial town. They made everything there from ships to nails. There was approximately 12,700 convicts went through there over that uh, period and many boys. There were many young uh, boys transported from England. There was uh, one guy that I, usually, I used to talk about and his name was Blunston. His descendants have a uh, factory in Hobart that makes Blunston boots. Do any of you have any Blunston boots? Well, that young lad, when he uh, came out from England, he was a street urchin, he uh, learnt the trade of boot making at Port Arthur as a boy prisoner. So it wasn't all that bad for them because a lot of these boys did make something of their lives. I will talk about communication. Communication with the outside world in the 1830s using a semaphore system enabled a message to be sent to Hobart Town and a message returned within 15 minutes. If a phone wasn't available on the day of the massacre, I hate to think what would have happened. All other forms of communication with the outside world were hopeless. Two-way radios, mobile phones. They did it better in the convict days. The authorities had been aware of this problem for as long as I can remember. The Port Arthur site is a government business enterprise and is run by the Board of Management. Thousands of visitors arrive annually. About 90% of these visitors come from interstate and overseas. And it was about 90% of the people that were injured and killed, uh, uh, the same thing applied on that day, so 90%. Now we've got a map here, and I'm just going to walk over here and just show you where Port Arthur is, and Andrew will also be using this map. This is Port Arthur, and this is where Seascape was. We're talking about this quite a bit. And this is Eagle Hawk Neck, and this is the only way you can get onto the Tasman Peninsula. So you can see why they chose this area as a penal or a prison, because it was surrounded by water, and it would be an island only for this little neck of land, which is only probably 200 metres wide. They had uh, a team of dogs on there, and they were chained together very close. And they used to uh, tell the uh, convicts that this place was infested by sharks just in here so they wouldn't swim across. But that didn't stop the bush ranger Martin Cash. He had a go. Um, and then we get, we've got this, neck, the, this other peninsula, and this is the Forest Deer Peninsula. And up here, we have a bridge that just, uh, when it's open, completely shuts that off too. So you've got actually the Forest Deer and the Tasman Peninsula. I won't go any further with any of the others because that's Andrew's uh, talk, but uh, I would also like to point out the coal mines. I would like you to see where they are in relation to Hobart. Now on Mount Wellington in, in Hobart, there, was, there is a tower that uh, actually transmits all the communications. And the coal mines out here would have, would have been the only place where the uh, perpetrators of this massacre would have planned to leave a heroin hall, as, as they called it. But I'll talk more about that in a minute. So the Tasman Peninsula's southeast of Hobart, travelling time from Hobart is one and a half hours. That's travelling at the speed limit. The road is not very good, it's rather windy and quite narrow. My da day at Port Arthur started on the 28th of April 1996. It is my own story. My life stopped that day. To best describe the feeling it would be to say it's just like a tattoo in your, on your brain. I feel like taking the top off my head 
and scrubbing and scrubbing until all my memory is removed. But it won't go. I only think about it every 10 minutes now. For the first two years, it was all the time. There'd, there would be almost 500 other stories that day. No matter where you were at the time of the shootings, there are many who would feel just the same as what I do. On that day, I was rostered to, on the ferry, the Bundina. I used to love the Bundina, going around the harbour and conducting tours. I'd done a harbour cruise at, uh, early in the morning at, from between 11 and 11.30. Between 12 and 1, I took a group of people onto the Isle of the Dead, and that was the convict burial ground. A lot of those people that accompanied me on that tour, including the Mikax, I found their bodies later in the Bordero Cafe. Nanette Mikak was very well known to me. Her father would live two doors from me. I nursed her mother. She died 15 weeks previously. I'm glad she wasn't alive to see the death of her daughter and grandchildren. I left the ferry at about 1.10pm. When I reached the outside balcony of the cafe, I noticed a young man with blonde hair staring at me. He would have known I was a staff member as, he wore a, as I, we always wore a Navy uniform with a tag, a name tag. As I walked by, I nodded at him, he nodded back, and I went into the cafe to buy lunch. I went to where the staff could purchase their lunch without getting hurled up and walked out of the side door and I went to the information centre. It was then about 1.20pm and if Andrew could just come over and uh, do his work, like he's supposed to, and put up an aerial photo for me, I'll be able to show you exactly where I was. This is the Broad Arrow Cafe. And there's a lot of bush up behind these cars. It's important you remember that. I'll just walk across here now. I'd, the side door of the cafe was about here. That's where I was. That was called the information centre. Along here, is a, there was a little gap where some people could have got out of the uh, building and escaped, but I, that's to come a little bit later. Down here, the bodies are still there. There's a couple here, another one here. That was the next day. I went to the toilet, as all good guides used to do, and returned to the information office and sat down for lunch. Often I did eat in the Broad Arrow, but that day, fortunately for me, it was busy. We had about 500 people there. And uh, so I didn't sit, sit down in there and have lunch. The shooting itself started at about 1.30. I say about because the 1.30 walking tour hadn't gone. If the guides didn't leave on time, they'd find they would be, they have no time to have five minute break when they came back before they'd have to take the next one. So the walking tours always went on time and it hadn't gone, they hadn't even split the group up so it was definitely before 1.30. And that, that is often disputed. I heard the sound of very, very loud bangs and uh, I, I never thought of a gun. I thought of it as possibly a gas explosion or anything but I ran towards the cafe and I was about six inches in from the side of this... Uh, oh, Andrew, you might be able to do that for me, point where I was. Sorry. About six, six feet from the side of the uh, cafe and I felt something fly by my head. Had no idea it was a bullet. Still wasn't thinking, actually. I thought I was having a brawl in there. I thought, well, I'm not going in there, lucky for me. And then a person came down the steps at the front of the broad arrow and he wasn't touching the steps. He was going over them. He was flying. And he was warning us to run. Well, out in front of the information centre, 
We had about 70 people waiting to go on this tour. There was a busload of elderly Americans and uh, they sort of didn't want to leave. They thought, gee, they do it well down here, you know. They really put on a show down here. In fact, uh, a little bit earlier in the day, um, one of the tours had been going up to the Commandant's Cottage and uh, just as the shooting started, there was a girl taking a tour away from there and that's over the bay from the Broad Arrow, right, right opposite. And uh, when the, the shooter started to fire shots across their way, she went down on the ground, flat out on the tummy, with the uh, Navy uniform on. So I got the warning to run, and I just froze. And I, he said that the people were being shot, so I just froze to the spot. And I don't know how long I stood there, actually. Might have been a minute. But I thought, well, I've got to get in there. But I can't go in there yet. Um, so I ran away towards where they were trying to shift the elderly tourists. And then I thought, God, if we don't let the police know, we're all going to be butchered. So I went back into the information centre. And you all can see where that is. And when I got in there, Sue Burgess and Stephen Howard were in there. And they weren't phoning the police, but what they were doing was very good. They were phoning around the display houses and up to the toll booth and warning them to not let any more cars in, to get the people in the area and get as many people locked up in those houses as they could. And uh, so I ran in and I rang the police. It was 1.32pm exactly and that has been recorded. I had little trouble convincing the police officer, naturally. He wouldn't be able to believe what I was telling him, not at Port Arthur. But in the end he said, be careful. So I knew he, he uh, believed me. I decided where I was going, the other two hadn't. So I just said, follow me, I know where to go. And then Sue being Sue, who was always very conscientious, she said, what about the money? Well, I won't, I used the F word, <laughs> the money. <laughs> One of them had grabbed the two-way radio, I hadn't thought of that, and so we ran. And just as we came out of the cafe, he came onto the balcony of the Broad Arrow and he started firing shots. I've been told that uh, he actually was firing us at us, but uh, he mustn't have been trying to kill us. I think he was just going over our heads. But uh, the man that saved us was a gentleman at the penitentiary on a cherry picker, and he had it right up in the air, working on the uh, brickwork. Anyway, he uh, decided he'd better get out of there, and he started the motor up. And then he started having a go at him as he lowered it down. So we, we got around the toilets and uh, up behind the broad eye there's a lot of bush and there's a bit of clear space. So we ran up the hill and when we couldn't hear him shooting we dived into the bush. Then we'd run again when, when he was shooting because we could tell where he actually was and when he wasn't shooting we jumped in the bush again and laid flat. We did this three or four times and then we heard um, shooting up the road. That would have been, the first shots would have been when he killed the Mickax. Then it seemed to be getting further and further away. And then uh, we got up behind the cafe and we found a young lady who was uh, working in the cafe and she was just so traumatised and frightened. She was just standing there. As we walked down the hill to go into the cafe, we took the young girl with us and I knew we wouldn't be able to take her in there, but we found uh, a, a man that appeared to us to be... Uh, shot with a shotgun. He seemed to have pellets all over him. But I've been told since it wasn't a shotgun. 
I don't know. Finding another man who'd been shot in the head and he had a piece of dirty rag over it. He said, do you want to have a look at it? I said, no, leave the rag there. I said, he said, I don't know whether the bullet's gone through my brain or whether it's I just, you know, creased the skull. So uh, that was nothing to what I was to find later. So we got these two men and got the young girl and got her to hide them. Now, uh, about this time, we got a message. We got a message uh, from Ian Kingston, one of the uh, car parkers on the day, and he said the vehicle's abandoned, it's still here, but we don't know where he is. So I was frightened, and I think that was the stage I peed myself. I was panicking. I was so frightened. I also knew what I was going to have to face in the Broad Arrow, and having been on an ambulance for years, I've seen what what gun can do. So I told the girl from the Broad Arrow to take the men and hide them. Get with them and take them further into the bush and hide them. I said, we know where you are. We'll know. Someone will come and get you. Just stay there. Sue and I climbed down the the hill to the back of the cafe and, and Stephen joined us. Then Sue said to me, I wonder if the girls got out. And I said, what girls? They said, Nicole and Liz. I said, oh God, no. Are they at work? And she said, yes. Now, Nicole and Liz... Nicole was Sue's daughter and Liz was Stephen's wife. They'd been married at Port Arthur only three years before. Nicole was 17, Liz was 25. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, so now we're going to get into the thick of it. We're going to discuss Bryant's gunmanship. For many people, the most important reason to doubt that Martin Bryant was the killer is on account of the latter's impressive gunmanship. In 1998... Wound Ballistics Review pointed out that the Port Arthur incident, quote, is unique in relation to the wounds for several reasons. Twice as many people were killed as injured, the reverse normally being true, close quote. What's more, ladies and gentlemen, the Broad Arrow Cafe gunman managed to shoot the first 19 out of 20 people dead with single, accurate shots to the head fired from his hip. Some researchers maintain that Martin Bryant, who was an amateur shooter with virtually no shooting experience whatsoever, would have entirely lacked the skills to carry out such a feat. A powerful case has been made to this effect by Perth researcher Joe Viles, whom we've already exposed as being Ari Ben Manash. Remembering, ladies and gentlemen, that it's been listed that Joe Viles apparently died by way of heart attack around 2005 in a Perth hospital. We all know that Mossad don't terminate Mossad. However, maybe, just maybe, like Jeffrey Epstein, he was made to look like it was suicide, and really, he's back living somewhere else, either using his name, Ari Ben Menashe, or maybe another name, who knows? Based on the fact that amateur shooters generally achieve a much lower killed to injured ratio than did the Broad Arrow Cafe shooter, in an enclosed space like the Broad Arrow Cafe, targets would have to be shot in a careful sequence with split-second timing to maximise the kill rate. Yet the Broad Arrow Cafe gunman managed a kill rate well above that required of a fully trained soldier an impossible task for a man like Martin Bryant with an IQ in the mid-60s and his total lack of military training. Joe Viles, aka Ari Ben Manash, 
concluded that the shooter was a military-trained marksman who would probably rank among the top 10 or 20 shooters in the world, or so he says. Brigadier Ted Sarong, former head of Australian forces in Vietnam, was just as impressed. In 1999, Ted Sarong, who explained that his eyes had first been opened by the astonishing proportion of killed to wounded, told those of the age, a Melbourne newspaper, quote, there was an almost satanic accuracy to that shooting performance. Whoever did it is better than I am, and there are not too many people around here better than I am, close quote. One reason why most members of the general public have accepted the official story that Martin Bryant was the gunman is that they possess a greatly exaggerated idea of what amateur gunmen are able to do. In other words, they watch too much bloody TV, ladies and gentlemen. Not only do amateurs tend to injure many more persons than they kill, they are usually overpowered before they have completed their sinister work. By contrast, the Port Arthur gunman was a thorough professional who was at all times in perfect control. Joe Viles writes, quote, The shooter in the Broad Arrow Cafe at Port Arthur demonstrated all of the qualities of a trained counter-terrorist marksman, but made no amateur mistakes. Always in motion and point shooting from the right hip with devastating accuracy. He killed 20 of the occupants with single shots to the head and wounded 12 more, firing a total of only 29 rounds. Using known techniques reported by witnesses, he ensured his own safety from attack by turning on the spot and staying outside grappling range. It was an awesome display of expertise, even by special forces standards." Close quote. However, we don't have to take the word of people like Joe Viles and Ted Sarong, who never saw the Port Arthur gunman shoot with their own eyes, although that's speculative, ladies and gentlemen, because Joe Viles was there. According to eyewitness and victim, Neville Quinn, quote, He, the gunman, appeared to be the best trained army guy I've ever seen. His stance was unbelievable, close quote. Also important to consider is that, according to most witnesses, the Broad Arrow Cafe shooter shot from his right hip. Not only is Martin Bryant left-handed, he told police he had never fired a gun from his hip. We should believe him. It is doubtful that anyone except a highly trained professional shooter could. And so that brings us to the next point. Weapons and ammunition used at Port Arthur. The prosecution claims that Martin Bryant perpetrated the massacre using two firearms, a Colt AR-15 semi-automatic .223mm rifle and a Belgium FNFAL semi-automatic .308mm SLR, a self-loading rifle, both of which were recovered from the Seascape Cottage after detectives went over the burned-out site on the afternoon of 29 April 1996. However, ladies and gentlemen, it is not clear whether these were really the weapons used at Port Arthur. Both were recovered in a badly damaged condition, which effectively ruled out ballistics testing. However, the matter is complicated by the fact that the earliest newspaper reports do not mention a Colt AR-15 rifle. No eyewitness mentions it either. Graham Collier said that the weapon used by the gunman inside the Broad Arrow Cafe, quote, looked like a standard SLR service semi-automatic, close quote. This description is more consistent with the FNFAL than the Colt AR-15, although it is this latter weapon that we are now told was the weapon used inside the cafe. 
The day after the massacre, the examiner reported that police had found a 0.223mm Armalite M16 at Port Arthur. Nothing has been heard since about the weapon that was found that day inside the Port Arthur historical site. Then, on 1st of May 1996, the West Australian told the public that the two weapons used had been a 5.56mm Armalite AR-15 and a Chinese-made SKS 0.762mm assault rifle. It is interesting that it took only two days for the Armalite M16, a prohibited import to Australia, to disappear from the public record to be replaced by a weapon which could be legally bought and sold in Australia. From this point onwards, the SKS became the weapon most frequently referred to in the media as the weapon Martin Bryant had used. Then, finally, the SKS was dropped altogether and its place in narratives of the massacre was taken by the Belgian FNFAL. To me, these intriguing shifts look like shifts from the real murder weapons to weapons that could be connected to Martin Bryant, if only because, like him, they also emerged from the seascape inferno. In any case, ladies and gentlemen, there is no evidence that Martin Bryant procured either of the weapons to which the massacre has officially been attributed. No one has even been proven to have sold the weapons to Martin Bryant in the first place, and no theory exists how he came by them if he did not buy them from gun dealers. A similar mystery surrounds the ammunition used at Port Arthur. Although Hobart gun dealer Terry Hill admits to having sold Bryant three boxes of Winchester X 11-2-ounce shotgun shells, code number X-Ray figures 1-2 X-Ray Charlie on the 24th of April 1996, just four days before the massacre. This is not ammunition which was used at Port Arthur. If Hill or anyone else sold Bryant the ammunition that was recovered from the crime scene, then Tasmanian police ought to have been able to prove it. The fact that they have never traced the origin of the ammunition, or at least have never revealed its origin to the public, surely means that it cannot be connected to Martin Bryant. It is, after all, extremely hard to believe that Bryant, with an IQ so low that it would put him in the bottom 1 or 2% of the population, as established by psychiatrist Ian Joblin in June of 1996, and could have managed his purchases of guns, ammunition, and everything else involved in the case so successfully that the police have utterly failed to establish the origin of so much as a single item. It is far easier to believe that the police simply do not want us to learn who procured those deadly items and how. Narratives of the Port Arthur Massacre also contain mention of other items which allegedly belonged to Martin Bryant. These items consist of a video camera and a yellow Volvo left at the Port Arthur historical site Tollgate, together with items found inside it, a full 25-litre drum of petrol, a 10-litre drum of petrol containing 7 litres, a grey video camera bag, lengths of sash cord rope, two pairs of handcuffs and three packets of little Lucifer fire starters. Not one iota of proof has ever been provided to prove that Martin Bryant owned any of these items, not even the bloody Volvo, which could have been an identical model of Bryant's rather than Bryant's unique vehicle. What's more, no one is on record as having admitted to selling Martin Bryant any of the items. Although Bryant could easily have purchased little Lucifer fire starters inconspicuously, it is unlikely that he could have bought large drums of petrol or two pairs of handcuffs without attracting attention. 
And so we come to concerns about lack of evidence against Martin Bryant, ladies and gentlemen. The lack of evidence for the identification of Martin Bryant as the Port Arthur shooter is a matter that should concern all Australians today. Only a few determined individuals have been brave enough to raise the matter in public at a meeting of the Australian and New Zealand Forensic Science Society held at Griffith University in Queensland in 2002, as we'd already mentioned earlier, and we will state it again for the record, Ian McNiven raised the subject of the lack of forensic evidence incriminating Martin Bryant. The presenter, who was apparently Sergeant Gerard Dutton of the ballistic section of Tasmania Police, grew angry and had university security threaten Ian McNiven and effectively evict him from the meeting. McNiven was not wrong to raise the question of the lack of hard evidence against Martin Bryant. In an interview with the Bulletin on 4th of April 2006, Tony Rundle, who became Premier of Tasmania six weeks before the massacre, effectively admits that the evidence in the public domain is insufficient to support the official determination that Martin Bryant had been the gunman, except that he tries to explain the fact away. Quote, Rundle still wonders whether the recovery might have been hastened if Bryant had stood trial. At the time, the view was a trial could do no good for the victims and their families. Now, I think maybe that wasn't the case. If all the evidence was heard, then maybe it would have provided some closure and stopped the proliferation of conspiracy theories that sprung up over the years, he says. Close quote. So, ladies and gentlemen, a question to Mr. Rundle. Given that a great many Australians are sceptical of the claim that Martin Bryant was responsible for the Port Arthur tragedy, can it ever be too late to release all the evidence? If he is so concerned by the proliferation of conspiracy theories, perhaps he should contact Fiona Baker, a former executive producer of the popular TV program Forensic Investigators that was from 2004 to 2006, which dealt precisely with the subject of how the police use evidence to identify suspects. Back then... Fiona Baker had not done a program on Port Arthur at all. I'm sure she would be delighted to make a program now as a vehicle for the first public presentation of the evidence for which Australia has been waiting for for 25 years. Hello, um, my name is Nikki Ottavi and I work for the Government Archives and Preservation Unit within Libraries Tasmania. So the Tasmanian uh, police and the Port Arthur Massacre. I think we all remember what we were doing when the Port Arthur Massacre happened in April 1996. I remember being at home ironing when we heard the breaking news that there'd been an incident at Port Arthur. Some people had been shot. We were shocked by the news and wondered what had happened, but we went about our day. A short time later, the news reported more people had been shot and with each number, with each report, sorry, the number of fatalities grew. By late afternoon, we were scanning the news, trying to make sense of what was happening. By early evening, we could think of little else. We could not comprehend the story unfolding before us. The gunman was still at large, details were scarce, and we all wanted to know what was going on. All eyes were on Port Arthur. The first calls for help were to the Tasmanian police. In 2009, the Tasmanian Police transferred their records to the Tasmanian Archive and Heritage Office, or TAHO as it was called then. I can still remember the day it arrived. There was talk amongst TAHO staff about how we had never received a set of records like this in our time as archivists. 
and how we di didn't really want to open any of the boxes. We knew it contained videos and photographs. I was duty archivist on the day and registered it into our system. It became known as Transfer 2900. At the time we decided it would sit on the shelves where we worked out what to do. There were some attempts at the time by the Manager of Government Record Keeping to work out a way of transferring the files from the three and a quarter inch floppies to a digital format and locking them down securely so they could not be accessed due to the sensitivity of the subject matter. He discussed this with our IT people, but it all seemed a little too difficult and was not resolved. Other tasks took over and nothing was progressed. Why did it sit on the shelves for, shelf for a few years? I have mentioned the floppies, but what about the other formats? There were obvious challenges here too. VHS, beta cam, audio cassettes, photographs, CDs, DVDs, 35mm negatives, film strips, micro cassettes and even glass plate negatives. And I did ask the police why in 1996 do we have glass plate negatives and they couldn't tell me because the, pe the forensic people were no longer in the department but if anybody knows I'll be very happy at the end if you come up and chat to me about that because we still don't quite know why. But they are there. The other challenge was the content of the records. How do we deal with records we know may cause distress to your staff? How do you migrate records and check the quality of the newly digitised record when the subject matter contained horrible scenes and you shouldn't look at them? How do we protect staff from the graphic nature of the work, protect the integrity of the records and still ensure the records preserve the memory of what happened? So many challenges. So it wasn't surprising the records sat on the shelf for a while. The Tasmanian Police Records of the Port Arthur Massacre will be open to the public in 2071. But if we left them on the shelf, what would they look like in 2071? In early 2016, we decided it was time to deal with the fragile formats. Coincidentally, with the 20th anniversary of the Port Arthur Massacre approaching, Tasmanian Police were beginning to receive right to information requests from journalists. Tasmanian police asked to, to retrieve certain documents and then found that they couldn't view some of the records because of old software. One record was a PowerPoint presentation the police had put together for training purposes. They found a computer within their department which still had the old software installed and updated the presentation, saved it to a USB and returned it to us. Their records manager wrote to us and stated her concern the information would be lost and what were we going to do about it. I was able to say we were concerned too and we were working on a strategy to deal with the issues. The time had come to act. I decided to volunteer. I had been involved in the request from Tasmanian Police to, retri to retrieve certain records and I was familiar with the listing of the records. Looking back now, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I started. Of course, I noticed I started with the paper, because paper is easy. Almost immediately, I noticed a sense of anxiety in the way the records were put together. This is certainly not a criticism, just an observation, and it was completely understandable to me, considering the overwhelming task Tasmanian police were dealing with, there was little order um, dealing with why this was the case. There was little order in their file numbers. There was lots of duplication. They wanted to keep everything, 
including software discs to download appropriate forms and the software manuals as well. These were also given file numbers. Moving on to other formats, I found VHS and beta cams, audio tapes and micro cassettes of the same police interviews as well as typed paper transcripts. I emailed the records manager at police and explained this. What was an original, what was a copy? The records manager spoke to one of the senior police officers who had been part of the Port Arthur task force set up at the time. His reply was just keep everything. Thankfully, the records manager continued the conversation and with the trust she had built with her department, she was able to explain how the duplication wasn't necessary and allay any fears information would be lost. The reply back to me was the VHS or the beta cam were the originals and we, wouldn't keep, and we would keep the paper transcripts. The other formats were not required. It became very clear this transfer of records could not just be done by one single archivist. We had to assemble a team. The records manager of the police department had already been a great help, but we needed others. So we gathered together archivists, collection managers, senior police, forensic personnel, technical staff and digital experts. We used the team to deal with the migration of the VHS and beta cams to a digital format. Almost all videos had big stickers with warning may include graphic images written on them. We could tell from the descriptions we could not let our staff in our Reaper graphics team transfer these to a digital format. So we set up a meeting with the Tasmanian police and asked them if it was possible for us to bring equipment to their offices for staff who were trained to view graphic evidence and had appropriate psychological support in place. We went through senior channels and we found the Tasmanian police very understanding of our concern for our staff. They offered the services of their digital evidence unit to transfer the videos. We gathered together the equipment we bought a high-end, low-usage Super VHS and a Betacam machine. And I think the VHS had to come all the way from Germany or someplace like that. The VHS was a great buy, but the Betacam was useless. And in the end, we just kept it for parts. That's what happens when you deal with old technology. As there were only a few Betacams, we took down the one and only machine we always use. We also supplied an analogue to digital video converter along with the usual computer, cables and hard drives. It took the digital evidence unit three months to transfer all the videos in between their other jobs. Considering how busy they are, we were very grateful they undertook such a big task for us. We had a few little hiccups, but I found the system support team within Libraries Tasmania really helpful and I would only have to send an email and somebody would visit the digital evidence unit and do what was needed. The police not only transferred the video, but they all, videos, but they also gave us some indication of the duration of the videos and the quality, and I was able to transcribe this information into our archival management system. Of the 117 videos we took to the digital evidence unit, they trans transferred all except for 35. They were having trouble with these. These videos were of interviews and important because of the audio rather than the visual. They did not contain any graphic footage. Being interviews, the videos were lengthy and would have ended up as huge digital files. 
The person in charge of the unit was also being seconded to another area, so he asked me if it was possible for us to take over. We suspect now that this may have been, there may not have been enough space on the hard drive, so every time they tried to do a video, the process stalled. With the assurance the videos were not graphic, I called in our Ripper graphics staff. They were okay with transferring these. Our Ripper graphics staff had already transferred some of the audio cassettes and would use the same technique. After checking the audio was okay, they turned down the sound so that they do not have to hear anything being said. Although I was told, and I certainly experienced this myself, that just listening to a few words could still cause a little anxiety. But it was manageable and in the interest of getting the job done, we did what we had to do. Prior to this transfer, I'd, I had only dabbled in working with digital records. So the help I received from our first digital archivist, Tim, was invaluable. Although there could have been much eye rolling on his part, he never did, well, not in front of me anyway, and he patiently took me through the steps I needed to work on the 93 floppies and the nine CD-ROMs. Tim installed FTK Imager, a forensic toolkit, on my computer. This way I could make a verifiable disk image. With FTK Imager, I could retrieve the files off the obsolete carrier and work on a virtual identical copy. This overcame other general issues in that the data would not degrade and the speed was quicker, which made working on the large volumes of floppies so much easier. With the files safely extracted from the original media, we could also check what was on each of the disks without damage to the original and decide which series to put the various files into. One disk had a virus on it, but Tim assured me a virus from 1996 was not going to do much damage today. By using FTK, FTK Imager, I was still able to work with the files on this particular disk. The Tasmanian police records of the Port Arthur massacre had the highest access restriction our Archives Act allows an agency to place on any records. They are an E75 access restriction, which means they are closed for 75 years and the E means that only one person or position can grant access. In this case, only the Commissioner of Police can grant access. This caused us another issue. With such a huge amount of digital files and a basic digital preservation system, how could we securely store the data? We stored all digital files on two hard drives of eight terabytes, so two identical drives, and two sets of LTO tape, which is linear tape open tapes. Everything was packed in Bagot specification. Bagot specification is a hierarchical file packaging format for storage and transfer of digital content. A bag had just enough structure to enclose descriptive tags and a payload. This means that there was a simple set of with a simple set of tools we can verify that the bag is complete and that the content had not changed. Every two years for the hard drive and every four years for the LTOs, we will retrieve the storage media and test the bags. If a bag fails, that is a checksum, there is a checksum mismatch, we can see if the other hard drive has the correct file. Once we have the correct file, we can restore it and revalidate the bag. After this testing, we could also refresh the media. We're also keeping the fragile formats at least until we do this first check. And we're also working with the Tasmanian government to progress our business case for proper, proper digital storage and preservation. 
And if anybody would like some information on Bagot, um, Tim has provided me with a link to the Library of Congress, so please see me afterwards. Once we had transferred the files, had the, file, the transfer mostly completed and the paperwork was ready to send back to Tasmanian Police, we had a decision to make regarding our website. Usually we display a list of our holdings on our website. We display the series but may restrict the items if there are any privacy concerns. In this case, this, in this case the series themselves had information I knew may cause anxiety to those who had been involved. But what about government transparency? Here was our dilemma. Would we be adding numerous right to information requests to the police? And more importantly, would we be causing distress to those involved? It had only been 20 years and the massacre is still very raw for many people, especially in Tasmania. Would some of our descriptions cause distress? The answer I knew was yes. This may not be the case in 15 to 20 years time, but I knew it was still the case now. I knew people who were caring for loved ones who had been first responders at Port Arthur and suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. When the 20th anniversary was approaching and, our TV and one TV channel was advertising a documentary about the Port Arthur massacre, my daughter jumped up in a panic to ring her friend whose husband had been a first responder. She told her friend to make sure he wasn't watching that particular channel. The wife was very distressed and thanked my daughter for telephoning. She said other friends had also called. Knowing this, what could I do? Government transparency is important. I sounded out the advice of the State Archivist and also the manager of the State Library and Archives Service who provide access to our State Archives. In the interest of transparency, we could not pretend we didn't have the records. After discussions with the manager of the State Library and Archives Service, we decided to not display the series I had created, but to create an overarching series which we could display. In it, we stated we held the Tasmanian police records of the Port Arthur massacre with access only granted in writing from the Commissioner of Police. So we weren't saying we didn't have the records, but we also gave few details. And this is certainly something we can revisit later and there will come a time when we will display a list of our holdings. Um, the paperwork is currently with the State Archivist, um, so they, the overarching series hasn't um, displayed yet, but it will very soon. So lessons learned. When you spend so much time on such an important project, it is often the case you look back and think how far we have come. What were the lessons we learned? There is no way we could have had a successful process without bringing in other specialists in their field. As archivists, we're not and cannot always be the specialist. We have to rely on others and their knowledge. We need to identify and sometimes rely on the capabilities of the depositor and follow a holistic approach to our records. In this particular case, we brought in many specialists, including the Commissioner of Police. We shouldn't be wary of calling on the capabilities of others who can add value to our records. And finally, I hope you will indulge me for just a moment. I wanted to share with you a more human side to these records. 
You can't just really talk about the Port Arthur massacre without some mention of the overwhelming sadness of what happened on that day. I have already mentioned the duplication within the records and because of this I had to read many statements matching against other statements and yes, I probably did read a little too much. While I was doing this, I came across a statement which was a little different to the others. It was different in that it wasn't written in discussion with police. Police statements are just that, statements of fact, as they should be. No emotion, just fact. One person in the Broad Arrow Cafe at the time of the shooting had been too traumatised to talk to the police. On their return home, they started writing down what they had seen and what they felt, and they sent it to police. They described the scene in the cafe, the conversations with others as they tried to help those injured. They waited for help and did what they could. There was the added fear that the gunman may return. It wasn't an overly dramatic statement, it just told the story. But it brought home the humanness to this transfer of records. I sat at my desk with tears in my eyes. If ever there was a moment where I needed reminding why archivists do what we do, here it was right in front of me. I couldn't do anything for them except to make sure their account of what happened that day was preserved. Oh, for heaven's sake, what a crock. Well done, Nikki, with your crocodile tears. Such crap, ladies and gentlemen. This is the type and level of emotional manipulation we are up against. How bloody convenient. You get a woman who comes on, working for the Tasmanian Archives and Heritage Office, spinning a complete load of bullshit. I mean, it's bullshit, ladies and gentlemen. There's no other way to put it. The evidence that was supposedly collated from the Port Arthur massacre, it didn't sit on a shelf for a few years, Nikki. It sat in a damp basement room since 1997. That's 12 bloody years. And that was deliberate, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, so that the evidence, what they claimed was evidence, was basically being allowed to be exposed to the elements, thus destroying it. There were no real records. Ari Ben Manash had copies of everything. The Gideon Nim, aka Unit 33, had their copy also. From our source, the file had the Warner Brothers Tasmanian Devil sticker on the front of the bloody folder. You cannot make this shit up, folks. And more bullshit. All our intelligence agencies in Australia have pristine old-school VHS and beta video players, recorders, everything in order to always be able to access archived materials for evidential reasons. Again, what the hell? And they are immediately transferred to either DVD or hard copy, disc and high-end memory sticks, i.e. USBs, for archive space and storage purposes. Officers and other intelligence agencies from ASIO, ASIS, the ONA, which is the Office of National Assessment, and ASD, Australian Signals Directorate, all have archive access for such technology readily available, even from places such as Pine Gap. I mean, for heaven's sake. And then to say that, you know, with regard to the first responders, I got some news for you folks. The bloody first responders, as Wendy Skur has already stated, they didn't get there for over three hours. I mean, you just can't make this shit up. And you wonder why we've got all this evidence that's been obfuscated and there was no bloody trial for Martin Bryant. I think that's absolutely correct. Martin Bryant was supposed to die in the fire at Seascape Cottage. I mean, this is just ridiculous. It truly is. Anyway, 
We're now going to move on to the very final piece of this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, with a series of significant questions that remain unanswered to this day that need to be asked front and centre within a coronial inquiry, but more importantly, this case needs to be put before a magistrate in a criminal court. But before we do that, we will see you on the other side of this break. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, so still think Martin Bryant is guilty? Okay, then ask yourselves these questions. How did Barry Unsworth come to make the prediction in December 1987 that, quote, there would never be uniform gun laws until there had been a massacre in Tasmania, close quote? So again, ladies and gentlemen, why Tasmania? Why did Ray Groom sacrifice a ministerial position in federal parliament to take up a Tasmanian parliamentary career about the time of the above statement by Unsworth? Why did Ray Groom step down as Premier of Tasmania in 1996, but still retain several ministerial portfolios concerning the upcoming massacre? Why did the Tasmanian government buy the Broad Arrow Cafe when all governments, state and federal, were privatising other ventures? Why did the Tasmanian government ask a Hobart funeral business to tender for a 22-berth freezer mortuary truck in the 12 months before the massacre when no other state or territory in Australia had such a vehicle? Why after the massacre was there an attempt to sell this truck, seeing as its use was so successful? Why did the aforementioned funeral business buy mortuary boxes to handle the corpses in excess of 22 from a Victorian company in time for the massacre. How is it that Tasmanian Police Commissioner Richard McCready had Martin Bryant's file before the gunman had been identified as Martin Bryant? Then we come to the Broad Arrow Cafe questions, ladies and gentlemen. Why were there possibly as many as 30 intelligence agents present at Port Arthur that weekend? Why were seven of those intelligence agents killed that day, two shot inside the Broad Arrow Cafe and five at the scene where the killer exchanged the Volvo for the BMW. As the gunman was never reported as wearing gloves, why did the police never recover DNA or fingerprints from his eating tray, utensils, drink container, rifles or magazines said to have been used for the massacre? Why did the police leave the window down of the abandoned Volvo overnight, causing due to dissipate fingerprints from the steering wheel? Why did the gunman need to take the BMW to Seascape Cottage when he already had transport via the Volvo? Why did the gunman need to take Glenn Pears as a hostage? Why did the Victorian bank manager stand up and say, quote, no, not here, not here, close quote, when the shooting started in the Broad Arrow Cafe, after which he was immediately killed? Why wasn't Roger Lana's witness statement in which he shows that Martin Bryant could not have been at Port Arthur at the time the shootings began taken into account. Why were these witness statements or any other favourable to Bryant not shown to the judge? How did Police Commissioner Fielding purport to know that there were no live hostages in Seascape Cottage on Monday morning, 29 April 1996, if he didn't have radio contact with the people inside Seascape Cottage? Why was Mrs Carlene Bryant who was escorted to police headquarters by police, not asked to identify the telephone caller's voice from Seascape Cottage as her son, Martin. 
Why was Carlene not asked to persuade Martin to give himself up? Why did Sergeant Dutton make false statements about the weapons supposedly used? Why did Sergeant Dutton have a questioner, Ian McNiven, threatened with arrest and escorted from a Port Arthur Massacre lecture given at a university in Queensland? And next we come to Seascape Cottage, ladies and gentlemen. Why, when a sniper at Seascape Cottage requested to take out a gunman firing at helicopters, was he told, quote, negative, this has to happen, negative, this has to happen, close quote, as was overheard by emergency workers on their radio? Why did Damien Bug, the public prosecutor, write to Wendy Skur and other very important witnesses before Brian's appearance, stating that they would not be required to give evidence? Why did the Tasmanian government confiscate Martin's assets approximately one million Australian dollars, making him unable to fund his own defence team? Then we come to John Avery. Why was John Avery unethically chosen as Brian's defence lawyer, given that he had represented the Director of Public Prosecutions against a witness in the same criminal case? Why were military helicopters heard overhead most of the night, given that it was not legal at that time in Tasmania for even police aircraft to fly after sunset? And why were Wendy Skur and her husband, Graham, so persecuted by Tasmanian police that they had to eventually sell their house and their property and leave Tasmania? Why was Damien Bug promoted to Commonwealth Public Prosecutor and given permission to operate that position from Hobart rather than Canberra? Why was Justice William Cox rewarded with the appointment of Governor of Tasmania? What happened to Benjamin Overbeek, accused by some of being the real gunman? Why was federal legislation on gun control drawn up prior to the massacre? How is it that a rifle handed in during a previous amnesty was one of the weapons supposedly used in this massacre? And why did John Howe lie, saying that the Port Arthur massacre was outside the Commonwealth's jurisdiction even though he had already declared that there would be no inquiry and that the Broad Arrow Cafe was to be destroyed. And why have I had several attacks over the last three weeks in putting together the evidence in this podcast with viruses crashing at three times now after I've made attempts to contact the Governor-General, the Governor of Queensland and several others for my information all garnished from civilian investigators on the subject matter of this massacre. If the official story is true, ladies and gentlemen, why did Justice Cox have all official records locked away initially for 30 years, now extended until 2071? What do the authorities have to hide? Do you still believe that Martin Bryant is guilty of mass murder? If you do, I pity you as I do Martin Bryant. Remembering, ladies and gentlemen, that now that this has been locked away in the archives in Tasmania until 2071, 75 years, that sounds awfully like what Pfizer's trying to do with their safety data until 2076. It's pretty bloody obvious why, because people are dying from taking these supposed vaccines that we now know unequivocally are unrestricted bioweapons. The same is true of the Port Arthur massacre. The evidence is absolutely incriminating that it was an Israeli false flag conducted on Commonwealth soil. Something that I missed out in this article. When Martin Bryant first pled not guilty, he was entitled to a trial by jury, ladies and gentlemen. However, Justice William Cox refused to accept the plea of not guilty, and then nine months later, he accepted immediately pleas of guilty with no evidence provided 
as there was no evidence to link Martin Bryant to the crimes. How is this justice? It is not. And so it can be stated without any doubt whatsoever, Port Arthur massacre was staged in order to take gun rights away from all Australians. And in closing tonight's podcast, in the words of the fourth United States President, James Madison, he was quoted as once saying, oppressors can tyrannize only when they achieve a standing army, an enslaved press and a disarmed populace. So what is planned for Australia? What I see is mass depopulation. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Grace Stanton, and good night. And that's our final episode on Life Down Under for Season 1. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, Spotify. Check us out at our website, lifedownunder.exposed. Don't forget to join us next year for Season 2. From all of us here in the studio, we hope you have a better and happier new year. Thank you for listening.